1975, the journey continues. My name is Matthew Hughes and I'm the Executive Director of the International Relations Council, the Kansas City affiliate of the World Affairs Councils of America. On behalf of our fellow World Affairs Councils around the country, including especially our planning team of sister councils in Denver, Harrisburg and Tennessee, we are so very glad to have you here for what will be a deeply meaningful and timely exploration of the United Nations, then, now, and next. Thank you for taking the time to join the conversation. The United Nations holds special significance for us in the Kansas City area. On June 27, 1945, President Harry Truman, only two and a half months into his presidential term and having just signed the UN Charter the day before in San Francisco, arrived home by train to nearby Independence, Missouri to announce the creation of the United Nations to an audience gathered at the Community of Christ Auditorium. Today, that site hosts a beautiful UN Peace Plaza and Fountain and is only a short ride away from the Truman Presidential Library, which houses an impressive collection related to the beginnings of the United Nations. At the International Relations Council, our first speaker in January 1955 was Eleanor Roosevelt, who stopped in Kansas City as part of a national tour extolling the value of the UN. Today, these many years later, as our world continues to struggle with countless challenges related to sustainable peace, equitable health and nutrition, human rights for all, empowering education and limitless possibilities for our world, the United Nations has assumed an awesome and ambitious agenda through the Sustainable Development Goals and provides important global leadership, cohesion, and on-the-ground work to create the conditions where peace can hold and flourish. And it does all this in a way that no country could do alone. Tonight's esteemed guests will lend their insight on the history, current activity, challenges, successes, and next steps of this complex intergovernmental organization. We are especially grateful to the sponsors of this evening's program. Our thanks to the United Nations Association of Greater Kansas City and to the UNA's Nashville Cordell Hall chapter, the oldest chapter in the network and home to the father of the United Nations, former Secretary of State Cordell Hall, a son of the volunteer state. We do welcome your participation through the course of the evening using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. It is now my pleasure to introduce my, my friend and colleague, Patrick Ryan, president and founder of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, who will introduce our keynote speaker. Pat, take it away. Thank you, Matthew. On behalf of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, greetings from Nashville, Tennessee. It is a distinct honor to introduce Ambassador Thomas Pickering, a great friend of World Affairs Councils. It has been said by many that he is the most accomplished diplomat of his generation. Thomas Pickering served as U.S. Ambassador to Jordan, Nigeria, El Salvador, Israel, India, and Russia. Just think about that for a second. Imagine the magnitude of the challenges and responsibilities at any one of these posts. While serving as the UN Permanent Representative to the United Nations, the New York Times described him as, quote, arguably the best ever US representative to that body. Ambassador Pickering completed his government career 
as the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Thomas Pickering is a native of New Jersey. He received a BA in history from Bowdoin College and a master's degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He attended the University of Melbourne in Australia on a Fulbright Fellowship. After serving three years in the US Navy, he joined the Foreign Service in 1959. Go Navy, beat Army. I'd love to have time to share some stories uh, from the presidential oral histories at the University of Virginia uh, archives, like when he was roused by Egyptian police while on a camping trip in a remote area along the Nile while he was ambassador to Israel to connect through successive phone calls with vice president, presumably then president-elect George H.W. Bush to be asked to serve as UN ambassador, US ambassador to the UN, making the call from the, a lobby phone in a Russian hotel at an aluminum plant and being asked if he was on a secure phone. Or the meeting he had with Joint Chiefs Chairman General Powell and General Schwarzkopf at the National Security Council right after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 while he was serving as ambassador to the UN. Upon hearing they were primarily concerned with preventing an invasion of Saudi Arabia's Eastern province, he suggested they keep in mind having to do something about Kuwait, beating Margaret Thatcher to the offering advice that the US shouldn't go wobbly. But time short, so I encourage you to visit the UVA Miller Center archives to learn more about his experiences in the midst of history making foreign affairs. Ambassador Pickering, on behalf of the many World Affairs Councils, you have made look good by your presence. I thank you and welcome you to our program tonight. Matthew and Patrick, thank you very much. And Patrick, I'm particularly indebted to you for a marvelous introduction, so much so that my father would have been proud and my mother would have believed it all. But it is in some ways more than uh, uh, entertaining for me to come back with you and old friends in Nashville and join with others across the country in a very, very important opportunity uh, to commemorate an organization at 75. My first association with the United, States, United Nations was a high school student who visited from New Jersey Lake Success, uh, the site of the New York World's Fair of 1939, where the United Nations was just getting going. Subsequent years brought new interesting and I think valuable opportunities for me. I sat in the 1962 uh, General Assembly uh, in a conference room with Eleanor Roosevelt and Adelaide Stevenson. And it was more than an honor. It was a particularly striking for me bolt from heaven uh, to sit in the same conference room many years later with the mission of the United Nations uh, and the US uh, firmly behind it in an interesting way. Tonight in my keynote speech, I wanna talk about only two things. The part of the United Nations we never see and why it is so important. And the part of the United Nations we always see and why it is so needful now of American participation and indeed new leadership. In that regard, what we don't see is what in fact helps the world to turn not just on its axis, but coherently, honorably, and legally so. The United Nations is co-opted and then founded 
a wide number of organizations called specialized agencies, uh, many under its direct purview and many with charters of their own, some beginning back as early as the 1870s to make sure that international mail was delivered on time. And everything we do that involves any international quotient, almost without exception, involve these organizations to assure that we do so safely, securely, soundly, independently, uh, financially, in a way that is not uh, going to disrupt us totally. Uh, and in a sense that there is uh, a rule of law and a world of order, not a world of disorder and not a world where the law is of rule. And these are very, very important mechanisms. So important, I think, that we can safely say, if they did not exist, we'd have to invent them. And many over the years have been invented by clever and innovative diplomats to suit that purpose. On the other side of the United Nations is where the cameras shine when there is an international problem of great significance, uh, the Security Council. The United States played a very, very important role in organizing the United Nations. The United States that remained out of the League of Nations on the basis of national choice, a, a very unwise thing to have done. But we learned from that mistake and indeed the mistakes that were made in putting together the League of Nations that we needed a central body with a few of the key states and a rotating representation of other states, not a body of all states where every one of them had a veto. Uh, and it was in many ways the Security Council that came uh, to occupy that role as the designers had intended uh, back in 1944 and 1945. Compromises were made. The Security Council uh, only came together um, because the five victors of the Second World War, uh, Britain, France, China, the Soviet Union, now Russia, and the United States agreed that they should pull together in the Security Council, but each of them fought for, indeed preserved and protected, uh, their own immunity from actions taken collectively that might have in one way or another uh, disadvantaged their role uh, in the world uh, and their particularly interesting and important fascination uh, not only with that role and their importance, but the value they brought to the UN. Uh, many have tritely said the compromise over the veto was to assure that the states that had the armed forces, the economic power, uh, and much of the capacity of political persuasion would indeed be part of the United Nations. And I was at the United Nations at a time when perhaps that was particularly more exemplified than any other, when we were able collectively to sit down and figure out how and in what way we would meet the challenge of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. The world did not stop turning on its axis when that happened, uh, but it was a blatant example of interstate aggression on the part of a larger and better armed and more forcefully equipped state against a smaller neighbor. It was one Arab state against another. Uh, and it was at a time uh, when as the Soviet Union was on the path to disappearance and Russia was coming to the fore, 
the world was in an exemplary time of transition. What was it, however, uh, that I saw and observed at the Security Council that made it so important and had it operate effectively? Much of it was because member states are always responsible for the most important decisions of the United Nations and particularly in the Security Council. Yes, the Secretary General has powers. Yes, the Secretary General runs a secretariat. Uh, yes, the Secretary General is a great force on the world stage, but without the Security Council being able, with its capacity to pass resolutions, which each state has agreed by signing the charter and joining the organizations, it will accept as the mandatory voice of the international community, which means they have undertaken, perhaps for the only time in the history of their states, uh, to agree to a decision made by 15 people in a room, sometimes far away, and be taken as part and parcel of their commitment to observe international law and indeed the rule of law in general. Now, this is an enormous power, but it has its own difficulties. We see now a United Nations shredded a bit in the Security Council by the inability, particularly of some of the leading countries of the world to see in a common effort how to deal with some of the most challenging and difficult problems. Certainly it's true with Russia, with China and the United States, uh, perhaps in the vanguard of disagreement. That doesn't mean the Security Council has not worked. It doesn't mean the Security Council cannot continue to work. It does so in many questions in which there is common agreement and some overlapping sense of responsibility. But many of the most trenchant and challenging issues, peace in the Middle East, what to do about Iran, what to do in areas where one time or another uh, we see the operation of terrorist organizations whose general commitment uh, to where they go is not widely shared idly, uh, uh, either by uh, the predominant organizations in the Security Council or by one or two that may have a special sense, uh, as we have seen over history, uh, that your terrorists are my freedom fighters. And that that has been a tough bridge to cross and it will continue, unfortunately, to divide us unless and until we can find better ways uh, to sit down at tables together, particularly with China and particularly with Russia and particularly with the United States, but also with the strong assistance of Britain and France uh, to hammer out those particular questions that need to be addressed. The lifeblood of the Security Council is resolutions. They record its decisions in words. Those decisions have meaning, particularly if they represent a consensus. Decisions without a consensus are in many ways left flat. And we have seen with the recent US effort uh, to take advantage of a novel introduction in the Security Council, that if one of the powers that had negotiated a treaty uh, to stop Iranian nuclear activities from moving into military capacity, uh, found that Iran was violating the elements of the treaty, uh, that indeed all of the UN resolutions uh, lifted by the treaty would come back into force. The truth was that if the United Nations uh, found that the state that was asking uh, for that activity 
had itself withdrawn from the resolution years from the treaty years before. And if the circumstances that constituted that stage charges of violation didn't hold water, it was quite clear that the rest of the world would ignore uh, that particular part uh, of the UN Security Council's activities that was so important. And this in itself is ultimately seriously damaging. It is, I think, a home truth that was true in my day and is still in true. You never should take a resolution in the Security Council. You don't believe you have at least an 85% chance of winning. And you don't take resolutions to the Security Council, even if you can win them, if you believe indeed they're there under false premises and the rest of the world will not go along with what it is that the Security Council tries to mandate. Years ago, Winston Churchill said at the beginning of the Second World, to the world War to the United States, give us the tools and we will finish the job. In the Security Council, we are unfortunately in danger of reversing that. Give us the job and we will destroy the tools. This is a serious time and it is very important, particularly for the Biden administration as it comes in, to take a hard look at the United Nations. They've appointed a wonderful American Foreign Service officer, Linda Thomas Greenfield, who will do a marvelous job and perhaps she can help bridge some of the gaps uh, because much of what is done in the United Nations is done by the permanent representatives of the key states working hard together and working in their own capitals to make sure they're supported. These are all methods and ways to push success. There is much to be done. The US owes a great deal of money to the United Nations in terms of what it has been in the past committed to pay. It must pay up. There is much to be done. Uh, I think that as we look at this, it is both the unknown record of tremendous achievement of the United Nations that I spoke about first, and now the new and challenging task of can we make the Security Council and its fundamental role in assuring peace and security a central piece of how American foreign policy will proceed beginning after the 20th of January. Thank you for this chance to be with you. I look forward to your thoughts and questions and I turn the floor back over to you, Patrick, for follow-on. Is that okay? Okay. Ambassador, uh, thank you so much for your keynote remarks. And now let me introduce uh, Joyce Davis, uh, the head of the uh, World Affairs Council of Harrisburg and uh, the ringleader for all these collaborative efforts of World Affairs Councils. Joyce, good evening. Good evening, Patrick. Thank you so much. And uh, let's just say I'm going to welcome our panelists because the ambassador has certainly given us a lot to chew on, a lot to think about, a lot to discuss, and yes, perhaps debate. So let me invite our expert panelists to join us now. I'd like to invite uh, Linda Fasulo, who is the who I worked with for many years when I was an editor on the foreign desk at National Public Radio, and uh, Linda is still uh, NPR correspondent at the United Nations. 
But even more than that, she is the author of An Insider's Guide to the United Nations, which she is finishing up the final edits on the fourth edition of that book. Welcome, Linda. So nice to have you here. Thank you, Joyce. It's a pleasure. All right. And I would also like to now uh, invite the Honorable Gerard Oro, who is the former ambassador of France to the United Nations and former permanent representative of France to the United Nations. Welcome, Ambassador. I think you're still muted. Hello, great to be with you tonight. Wonderful, bienvenue, <laughs> right? And I would also like to invite Samuel Rocher, who is the supervisory archivist at the Harry S. Truman Library and Museum. Welcome, Mr. Rocher. Thank you, Joyce, good to be with you. Thank you. And finally, but not at all, uh, the least important by, by a long shot is Dustin Liu, who is the youth representative for the UNA USA UN Foundation. Welcome, Mr. Liu. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for that intro, Joyce. Very good. Well, listen, guys, you all heard uh, what I have to say are quite profound remarks that came from the ambassador, certainly looking back but looking ahead as well and offering some challenges for the United Nations as it goes forward. So I guess where I wanna start, let's turn to Linda. Linda, you're the one still running around and working hard uh, covering and making sure that Americans in the world understand what's going on. So when you were listening to uh, Ambassador Pickering, what were those things that you felt that you took away your thoughts on, on his remarks? Well, I guess the first thing was that, uh, of course, Ambassador Pickering was, was there at the end of the Cold War and oversaw the US role in terms of um, dealing with Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. And that that, that you know, set, set going an incredible role for the Security Council, of course, calling for the disarmament of Iraq and so on. And I think that action and the way it was handled helped put the Security Council on the map or back on the map for the American people and for the world. And then as, as the decade or two have been gone on, I think there's a less growing, I wouldn't say less respect, sometimes even less awareness about what the Security Council is doing. And um, part of it is of course, due to the changes in the world in terms of civil wars are now the norm in terms of what the Security Council deals with. The, the Security Councils um, had to face terrorism, uh, as well as the growth of WMD, as Ambassador Pickering uh, talked about the Iran, uh, Iran situation, the JCPOA. And now, of course, the Security Council has been stymied for almost a decade regarding Syria and other crises. And I think that, um, you know, the world has really changed. As Ambassador Pickering said, the Security Council is not necessarily in, a, in great form because of, of course, member states, particularly the P5 are so divided that going back, looking back to those days right after the fall of the Cold War in the 1990s, there was much more unity among the P5. Part of it, of course, was that Russia was weak. China was not uh, an economic power, was really beginning its rise. Whereas today, as we all know, there are tremendous frictions developed, you know, have developed, uh, and more recently between China and the U.S. Of course, over COVID. So I think that all of these challenges are much more important now, much more severe, and really are a great challenge for the incoming American administration 
and the rest of the design. Right. It's, it seems to me like we're at a turning point or a crossroads or something from the UN, from what the ambassador and what you have uh, shared with us, Linda. But let's bring in, uh, uh, let's get a little bit of the context of history from Sam Ruscha. Sam, I know you were listening to this. And of course, the ambassadors clearly pointed out the great achievements of the United Nations. But I wonder, as you heard that, what was going through your mind? What do you consider to be the, the historical context we need to have? Well, I think to add on to what the ambassador said and what Matthew Hughes said at the very beginning, uh, I think one of the real takeaways was American leadership and the important role of American leadership uh, in establishing the United Nations. Uh, that leadership began, you know, during World War II with the Atlantic Charter, uh, you know, which kind of inspired the United Nations and other international agreements. Uh, and then the, the declaration by, Uni by the United Nations, uh, the Allies, uh, during World War II, uh, Britain and uh, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, in 1942, which uh, kind of was the basis for the United Nations. But, you know, it really was, uh, you know, Harry Truman, who you know, very shortly after he suddenly became president of the United States, uh, unexpectedly, you know, in April of 1945, his first decision was that the, the uh, conference in San Francisco to establish the United Nations should move forward. That was his number one decision, his first decision as president. And the, the other thing that's important here is the bipartisan nature of the United Nations early on. So we have the American leadership and we have a very bipartisan uh, uh, movement behind the establishing the United Nations. Uh, and there was a lot of public American public support. Uh, author and reporter Joe Scarborough recently observed that the, the quote, high watermark, end quote, of American public support for the UN was during the Truman years. Um, and the media and editorial writers were behind the United Nations as well. And, you know, for Harry Truman, it was really an American interest to do this. Uh, it wasn't just altruism. Uh, it was in, in the United States' best national security interest. Uh, and public interest to be involved in the world to prevent a third world war. Uh, Harry Truman was an ardent student of history. He looked back and saw that, you know, with the failure of the League of Nations after World War One, a, a failure of American leadership to get on board with the League of Nations after World War One, Harry Truman saw that as as kind of he saw drew a direct line to World War Two, and thinking that if there had been the United States involvement in the League, that World War Two might have been averted. So, you know, for Harry Truman, he's looking backward, he's, he's in the moment, he's also looking forward to the United Nations as a way to prevent a third world war. Very good, thank you. That that's excellent. And uh, Ambassador Oro, I'd like to bring you in because you've heard the American perspective on all of this. This is how we're viewing it. What's good for us? But let's talk about what's good for the world. I mean, you bring another perspective. Can we hear your thoughts on this? Thank you very much. No, I think uh, the, the first element that we, we should uh, know is we should avoid to have a, a sort of unrealistic expectation towards the United Nations. Uh, because whatever we want to do, uh, we will bump into the rock of national sovereignties, uh, which means that small countries uh, are committed to their own national sovereignty and they will be extremely worried uh, we, if the machinery of the United Nations was going to interfere 
with this uh, sovereignty. As for the great powers, and especially the United States, you, the Russia and China, they have, the three of them, have opposed uh, any uh, intervention of the United Nations into the topics they consider as their vital interest. Uh, as for the United Nations, uh, the United States, for instance, uh, the United States will as opposed and will oppose any attempt of the United Nations to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, the United States did the same with Iraq. Russia uh, opposed the United Nations role in Ukraine or in Syria and so on. And let's be frank, it's not going to change. Uh, whatever is the administration in Washington, D.C., no American uh, uh, administration is going to accept uh, the U.N. handling the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for, for instance. So let's not dream about an exalted role of the United Nations. It won't happen. But, and I think I will join what Ambassador Pickering was saying, the United Nations may have a very important and useful role. Let's look at the United, United, United Nations Security Council, for instance. You know, people don't know that uh, the United Nations is trying to solve uh, a, a dozens, I think, a dozen of conflicts, especially in Africa. You know, this sort of conflict where thousands, dozens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are killed, thousands of women are, are raped, uh, in conflicts, in a sense that great powers don't care, don't care. Let's be frank. You know, I'm not sure that all the people who are taking part in our in our meeting know that in Central African Republic, in South Sudan, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, you know, you have United Nations peacekeepers, uh, you have United Nations agencies uh, trying to help to support. Uh, uh, the populations. You know, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, people say that at least one million of people have been killed. And as you know, uh, rape is used as a weapon against dozens of thousands of women in the most horrible uh, circumstances. So maybe it's not the great conflicts, you know, that, that which, which are on the front page of the newspapers, but there are real conflicts with a real lot of lot of sufferings. So that's the United Nations Security Council is doing the job the best it, it can do. And but they, the United Nations peacekeeping operations, I guess 100,000 peacekeepers in the world, maybe 10 or 12 conflicts. I think we, we meaning the Western world, the Western countries, we should be much more supportive of the of these peacekeeping operations. Actually, only third world countries, more or less, are, are contributing to these forces, uh, while we, the West, uh, first, we have good soldiers, but we are uh, only, I think, only maybe the French and the Chinese are taking part in these operations, but on a limited, in a very limited way. But we could bring a material support to these operations. They need the mat a material support. We, the West, we have the means. Uh, I think we should be more proactive. Second uh, part of the United Nations role, which has been emphasized by Ambassador Pickering, and I think the people don't know it, uh, it is the role of the UN agencies. You have scores of agencies where thousands of people, very often, you know, young people, you know, working in the most difficult circumstances, you know, really in uh, and, and trying to help 
the civilian the civilian population, trying to feed the population, to cure the population, to protect uh, the, the the local populations. You know, when I was ambassador, I met a lot of these uh, young experts. You know, from all over the world, uh, going in the very dire circumstances and doing an admirable job. So if there are young people listening to us, and I know there is Dustin listening to us, I should encourage them, you know, to volunteer and to join, you know, really uh, these agencies, which are doing an incredible job. And again, they need us. They need our money uh, with the West. And I'm not sure that we are that generous. And I include my own country, but uh, I could include also the United States. Uh, among them, uh, and also to have a look at the governance of this agency. It's always possible to improve their their functioning. Their functioning. Uh, Ambassador Aro, I'm so glad you you mentioned the young people because we do have young people, and I'm getting ready to turn to Dustin and Neha, one of our young global scholars. Neha Shuklai is interested in listening and wondering how and how do you get involved with the United Nations. So let's bring in Dustin here, and and thank you for also mentioning the agencies. Many people, especially in the United States do not realize the great work that actually is being done on the ground in some of these really difficult areas. So thank you for, for raising those issues as well. So Dustin, let's bring you in here. I know you're, you're raring to go. You must have a lot of thoughts as you've listened to Ambassador Pickering and to all of these quite esteemed and distinguished colleagues. So let's hear your thoughts on this as, a, as the future. You know, Joyce, this is not only a hard panel to follow, it's an impossible <laughs> panel to follow, which actually makes my job a little bit easier. So I'll stick with what I know All right. from years of foreign affairs experience, but I can, uh, you know, resonate with what Ambassador Pickering brought up as a recognition gap of the importance of the United Nations in our everyday lives. I think that, you know, uh, over the past few months, I've been on a listening tour, connecting with young people, asking them, what do you know about the United Nations? How do you want to be connected with the United Nations? Uh, there is a recognition gap of how United States participation in the United Nations impacts us on a daily basis. And I think it's really important for young people to have hope in multilateralism. You know, our well-being as individual cities, states, and countries depend on the well-being of those halfway around the world. And I think COVID-19 has been a critical reminder of this fact that the virus has shut down the world, no country is immune, and it can only be solved if we build better together. What I found really interesting in my work with young people is the importance of localizing the idea of multilateralism and the sustainable development goals. We need to understand that there is something here about hope. There's something here about the idea that we can collaborate across borders that gives young people hope. And I've been so encouraged by recent UN reform uh, to involve an envoy on youth, to have you know, a youth advisory group on climate change, and to understand that each and every one of us have, has an opportunity to play a role in pushing forward these really critical issues. I think in so many ways, the United Nations can sometimes feel uh, like a foreign body halfway around the world, right? Something that was created outside of our confines. But if we understand the history, we played a critical role in its founding. I mean, the history of Eleanor Roosevelt, the history of so many of these icons that have really shaped uh, the United Nations, it, it's right here, it's local and it's at home. So a lot of my work, and as I'm hearing a lot of these thoughts, you know, how do we translate this energy? How do we translate this potential? And how do we translate this hope to young people? That's something that I'm still thinking about and I'm sure uh, our fellow panelists will have a lot to think about as well. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for the energy that you're bringing to this, to this discussion and, and the enthusiasm for the United Nations. But let, let's stop here because I think Dustin has also identified a key issue. And I'd like to, to, to get your take on this. 
is it really the United Nations that um, has a problem perhaps with communicating with the world about its good work? Is there a problem that um, it's simply not doing enough to bring the world in, especially to bring Americans in? And let me start with, with Sam because has this always been a problem that Americans didn't really understand or, or know or fully grasp how much our own security is related to what Dustin has called this bilateralism? Has this always been a problem or is this a new development? Well, I, I think in the, the, the cycles of American history, you know, there have been, um, I suppose, waves of, of nationalism and nativism versus internationalism. Now, historically, though, the United States, by virtue of being you know, physically isolated uh, from, from European powers and Asian powers, has had the luxury you know, in the 17th, 18th, and, and 19th centuries, and even in the mid 20th century, with the exception of its involvement in World War I, has had the luxury of, of kind of, of giving in, so to speak, to some of its more isolationist tendencies. But, uh, but the internationalism has existed, and it really came before, during, and after World War II. Uh, and it took quite a bit of American leadership, though, at the national level by the president and important members of this, this U.S. Senate and the, the House of Representatives, uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, importantly, uh, to, to kind of educate the American people and bring them on board. It took a lot of time. And of course, you know, these, the strands of nativism and the nationalism still, of course, uh, exist, uh, to say the least. But, but you know, I, I think it did take a lot of work. Uh, and in the 1930s, you know, you saw, even with the rise of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, you saw important, you know, uh, anti-international uh, tendencies in the United States, uh, important nativism, you know, after World War I as well in the 1920s. You know, so there was a, a really strong kind of backlash to that. But, you know, I, I think it took quite a bit of, of education and, and, frankly, leadership by people such as Franklin Roosevelt and, and Harry Truman as Democrats, but also with important prominent Republican senators such as Arthur Vandenberg and Warren Austin, the first ambassador to the United Nations, uh, you know, as, as well as prominent Americans such as Eleanor Roosevelt and Ralph Bunch, uh, who's often forgotten today, but important African-American diplomat and winner of the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize for his role in mediating the uh, Arab-Israeli war after 1940-48, first Arab-Israeli war. So uh, that's that's kind of how I see it. Okay. Now, now, Linda, he's he's you know he's given a good uh, description there of how leadership is what uh, perhaps uh, is important in in making America helping the world view the important role of the UN. But I know that you know in our country, especially of late, we haven't had that kind of leadership. We've had people bashing the United Nations. We've had people questioning whether they're usurping our authority. We've had. People deciding, presidents deciding, they're not going to pay up anymore. Linda, what's going on here in this country? <laughs> you know. <laughs> really? Maybe a little bit about the UN. <laughs> but, um, well, I think what, what's, what I find very interesting just being at the UN is how there is so much more concern or has been concern and interest in terms of the US role at the UN over the past few years. I mean, that's obviously an understatement. But there is, and people sort of look at how the U.S. has been basically withdrawing from organizations 
whether it's UNESCO or UNRWA, or of course the uh, JCPOA, the Paris Accord. Uh, I mean, you, of course now the WHO, which we're trying to. So I think in, even in the United States, when I have speak to different groups, there is a concern about what is the UN doing? Why is the US not happy with it? What can the UN do? And going back to the issue of the UN communicating what it does, as a journalist myself, I feel that that is something where they can use a lot of improvement because all we really hear is about the, generally about the failures. And of course the Security Council has not been doing a great job, except uh, in general, in a, in a big way. Of course, uh, the ambassador pointed out the role, its role in peacekeeping and how peacekeeping is viewed as one of the Security Council's uh, accomplishments and success stories. Right. But I think a lot will depend. Of course, we have this new ambassador coming who, ha who has a different approach. We'll see what the Biden approach is. And um, I think being at the UN, I think there's a lot of interest and, and a sense of welcome to the new administration. Right, I, I do think we're going to see a different attitude. I mean, I but 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 Ambassador Rowe, let let me talk to you. I mean, what are the French thinking? What's what is Europe thinking? I mean, are there there's not the same sort of uh, tendency toward hostility that we've had in this country. That this is never cr uh, cropped up in Europe. Oh no, it's a, it's an American problem. You know, you're 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 a country which has not ratified, for instance, the Convention on on disabled persons, which is a UN convention, which was not a binding convention. And even this convention was voted down by the US Senate. Uh, today, with the majority of the two thirds, you will never have any UN text approved by a UN Senate. It's very clear. Whatever is in the text, uh, it will be voted down. Uh, you have a real, real American problem to solve. Oh no, the UN is extremely popular in Europe. The Europe, as you know, European countries are very much in favor of multilateralism, uh, which is not the case in the US and even historically, because we are talking, uh, of course, you are talking of the, the outgoing president that uh, at the time of the Clinton administration, uh, the US didn't ratify uh, the, the convention on uh, forbidding the landmines, the anti-personnel landmines, which are killing hundreds of innocents. It was not ratified by the US. You didn't ratify the International Criminal Court. You didn't ratify the treaty banning uh, nuclear testing. So I think it's a good example that this country, the United States, is not naturally a multilateralist uh, country. On the top of that, you have this nativist wave, to, to quote Sam, and we are obviously in the middle of this nativist wave. So there is, a, there is a, uh, an American problem. And I should say it's also up to the American politicians uh, to have the courage you know, to, to talk on behalf of the United Nations, to tell the Americans that the United Nations actually is also uh, having a positive role for the, for, for the United States. This country is a country full of charity, of benevolence, uh, and I think there is a story, a UN story to tell uh, the Americans. Dustin, you've heard this. What, I mean, we have to look ahead. We have to look to your generation to pull us out of this quagmire, I'm thinking. What are your thoughts on this, Dustin? You know, Joy, it's a question I think a lot about, right? How do you make the UN personal to young people? 
in, in, you know, our own local communities. And I think it comes back to developing this idea that we need to build better together. I've seen so many young professionals and young people feel as though the UN is so far away. It's been so interesting, honestly, to use the sustainable development goals as a tool to localize change, to help expand an understanding that there is a, uh, you know, true benefit of having all member states focused on these goals and feeling as though you're part of it. So I think as much as possible, I've actually been very heartened by the way in which the UN is approaching youth engagement. I've been very heartened by the way in which they're involving youth delegates um, as part of the third committee, as part of ECOSOC. Uh, there is a sense that when you give young people a seat at the table, they understand the value of the institution. And I think time and time again, I've seen, uh, you know, the UN is starting to understand that by involving young people, you can really change the perception of an institution in a generation. Very good, very good. Uh, Ambassador Roy, I know you have been uh, ambassador to the United States uh, you know, more recently as well, but when you look at this, do you see things getting better or is it getting worse, at least from the outside perspective? No, I, you know, in a sense, I think it, it could be, uh, get better, especially uh, thanks to the young people, uh, because I think the young people may feel, uh, especially for instance, through climate change, fighting climate change, uh, in an American way or in a French way, or doesn't make sense. You can fight climate change only if we are all together, all on board. And being on board, frankly, the only place where everybody may be on board is the United Nations. And, and Dustin was referring also to the, to the development goal, uh, goals, uh, which really, in a sense, are trying to open the way to the future of the humankind. You know, we are American, we are French, but we are also member of the humankind. And in a sense, the only place where we are all together is the United Nations. Of course, United Nations have, have shortcomings. You can say it's a talk shop and so on and so on. But it's the marketplace of the world ideas. It's the place where everybody can come and talk about the future of the humankind. So it's the, 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 it's the moment to remind the Americans that they are also part of a, a bigger whole, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, our planet. Joyce, may I just say something? Yes, please, Linda, go ahead. In terms of the US, um, I think what's very interesting is while, you know, even the Trump administration has pulled out, as we know, so many agencies, one thing that still remains, and of course, part of that has to do with Congress, is there is a great generosity on the part of the United States in terms of supporting humanitarian programs at the UN. For example, the US gives two and a half billion dollars a year to the World Food Program, which we know is a leading uh, agency when, when it comes time to deal with any kind of crises around the world. We're the major funder of UNICEF. There is a, the UNHCR, I think the US provides one third of the funding. So I just wanted to throw that in that despite it's pulling out, we have to remember that it, it hasn't abandoned this core value I think that the United States has of trying to be generous. And this is all voluntary. And as the ambassador mentioned, a lot of countries are not as generous. They do not, they'll pay maybe their dues but they don't necessarily come forward with, with what the US does. And just to wrap that, this whole bit, uh, money issue up, yep. my understanding, unless it's really changed, is that about 60 to 70% of the US contribution to the UN, the whole UN, including all these agencies, 
is about 60 to 70 percent is involuntary contributions. Mm. So I think that just, you know, to put it in perspective that we have our assessed uh, dues in, in various agencies, but there is this great spirit and generosity that the U.S. you know has and does contribute that to the U.N. Very good. Thanks for sharing that, Linda. That's important for us to know. And I mean, I also think my my colleague here, Pat, has shared that we need to also make sure that we toot the the horn of the U.N. All the great stuff it's doing, uh, especially since we have an audience here, to let them know that the U.N. World Food Program won the Nobel Peace Prize mm -hmm. this year. That's something we need to be very well aware of and to realize how important this, this is for, for global peace. But I, I'd like to now see if we can bring in Ambassador Pickering because we have a lot of questions here and several of them have been directed at Ambassador Pickering and we can just make this a general conversation now. So Ambassador, let me, uh, let me throw one question here uh, at you from one of our uh, listeners here. He's saying, given the staggering number of Americans who have bought into America first nativism and a disinclination to engage with the world, what's the argument that you would make to them about the need for US membership in organizations such as the UN? Make your case, sir. <laughs> Joyce, thank you. I begin by saying 17 years or 18 years. We have not carrying most of the burden, not totally unshared, in Iraq or in Afghanistan, developed a military solution to those problems. That means that we need to fall back on diplomacy. We need to find a way to use diplomacy in a creative sense before we begin to jump into those conflicts as we think about the exit strategy. Uh, and in that regard, the notion that we have friends and allies around the world, many of whom have, for obvious reasons in the last four years, felt that they were hooked to a bankrupt former superpower, uh, will have to be in many ways encouraged again by the Biden administration. And we watched President Obama bring us back from the Bush invasion Iraq, and it three times as much time as it took for Bush to get in, if I can put it that way, to do that rebuild. Uh, but the notion that America first alone in the last four years, when we look at what did we get done in North Korea? What did we do in Iran to make things worse? How did we fail in the Middle East to solve Israel-Palestine? What did we do in Syria? What did we do in Libya? What did we do in Yemen? How have we, in fact, other than to create the consternation of a zero-sum conflict with Chinese over trade deficits, done anything useful with China? How have we increased Mr. Putin's strength and indeed his resilience at uh, looking not just at America first, but at Russia first? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Mr. Trump ought to leave office feeling Mr. Putin has made his day, but that hasn't made the globe better. And the globe exists for Americans and Americans exist for the globe, just as is true with every other country. And so we have had the enormous vindication 
of all of those years since the beginning of the Second World War, where people have wanted to listen to us and work with us. But we have done best, and I think we did best in the Cold War, when we listened to their ideas, took them seriously, knew that they were important in being part of an alliance, and that the more we tried to strut our stuff uh, and dictate to what people did, something I think we immeasurably took on after the end of the Cold War, uh, the worse things became, the more discouraged others became, the more isolated we made ourselves. And, and I can only tell you that the present condition of the globe, I think Gerard Echo uh, was being cautious when, when he said it's bad. I think it stinks. Wow. And I think we have to do it. And we've elected a president who hopefully could take it on, but no president since Abraham Lincoln or Franklin D. Roosevelt has had a bigger agenda. And I would argue that the Biden agenda is even, even more overwhelming. So we have a new opportunity. We haven't totally strangled the UN in the crib, but we've done our best to try to do that. Now we have an opportunity to come back, but we need to come back not as victors in some big parade. We need to come back with humility, mm. with dignity, but with respect for everybody. These are the things that make a difference and in my diplomatic life, when I failed to do those things, I lost and I knew why I lost. And when I was able to do those things, I knew that I had an opportunity to make another friend for my country. Very good. It, it's, it's incredible that you've brought up many of the questions that uh, our <laughs> attendees are asking. I mean, they're really asking questions about why has the UN not been more engaged or not be able to solve some of the problem. And, and one of them that's even here, I hear why the United Nations fails to protect human rights in China. China consistently abuses Uyghur minorities in the United Nations and the leaders of the world did not do anything to that to those violations. I, I'm wondering, Sam, if, if, if Truman were looking at the United Nations today, would he be disappointed that more isn't being done for example, great work is being done. We heard about the Nobel Prize, but so much isn't being done about these gross human rights violations, many of which uh, uh, Ambassador O'Rourke talked about. Right, right. Well, uh, I, I know in, in I mean, Truman's time was, was very different in some ways. Uh, it was the early Cold War period. Uh, for Harry Truman, the, the main challenges were to meet the, the, the aggression of the Soviet Union, now Russia, uh, and its expansionism after after World War uh, II, um, and so for him, the United Nations was part of what he called a structure of peace, uh, which, along with the the Marshall Plan, the the Truman Doctrine, and NATO, uh, the United Nations was part of that structure. So the UN did not exist separate and apart uh, in Truman's mind. It was all part of that that structure of peace that he referred to. And for Truman, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of struck by something he said in his memoirs, uh, which, and as I'm listening to everyone, I'm kind of thinking about that the United Nations is only as effective as the will of its participants to be engaged. And for Truman, he realized he was idealistic. He carried around a, a poem by Tennyson called Loxley Hall, which talked about the idealism of a world federation. Uh, Truman was uh, also Wilsonian in his idealism, but he was also realistic. He realized the, UN, the United Nations couldn't accomplish overnight its bold 
goals of attaining peace and preventing war. In his memoirs, he observed, quote, it was important for us to make a start, no matter how imperfect. Even the United States had to undergo a civil war before it could achieve a workable union. Um, so I'm kind of thinking that this is all sort of still in progress, the, the American experiment, as well as the United Nations. But it's better than the alternative. And is that how you view things too, that, that the UN is still a work in progress, that we are on a journey to get to some place where there can, this can be an instrument for world peace? I, I think that's fair to say. I, I'd rather limit my comments to historical matters, but uh, I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I was asking Linda, she had looking at this, she also said <laughs> this is a, a work in progress. I don't mean that as a cop out, but. <laughs> it's all right, I get it. <laughs> because the world is a work. I'll defer to Linda. I'm sorry. Right. Yes, uh, Ambassador Orov. No, I want to, to answer to the question about human rights in China. Yes. You can say human rights in, uh, in a lot, a lot of countries. As I was explaining in the beginning, uh, there is a, really a pillar of the United Nations, which is the national sovereignty. Uh, really the large, nearly all the members of the United Nations wouldn't accept uh, any interference with their national sovereignty. Try to imagine if some uh, UN people were trying, were, saying, were telling the Americans, frankly, you should change your guns, your guns laws. It would be, of course, it would be a, a revolution. So, uh, so that's, and in all issues like human rights, the decisions are taken at the unanimity, uh, which means, of course, that China uh, will could block any attempt to interfere with their uh, human rights, uh, human rights uh, situation. But I should add that uh, even if it was against China, uh, China would be supported uh, in a sense by a lot, a lot of countries. We have, nevertheless, we have succeeded to have condemnation of human rights situation in a few, few cases. Uh, Iran is one of, 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 this, uh, of this example. But it's a question of votes. People say the UN is not. It's not the UN. As uh, the professor was quoting Truman, the UN doesn't exist. The UN is an association of countries. So when you accuse the UN, you have to accuse the member states that all the decisions of the UN are taken by member states. Very good. So, so it really is the world having to come together to do something uh, positive for, for itself. It's not just the body. Um, let me ask you, Dustin, uh, we do have a question here about, and, and anyone who wants to chime in, how uh, anyone has recommendations for involving young professionals within the UN at the local level for instance, we are allowed to send out inform informationals to local high schools and such. Are you getting uh, in your schools actual information from the United Nations that is reliable? You know, I'll, I'll answer this from two sources. The first is the listening tour that we've been on. We've held over 100 plus small group conversations with young people. And we've actually heard a, a, a quite, quite a loud noise that some people just don't even know that the, the United Nations is an actual institution, right? I know that in some of our focus groups, we heard that some folks thought that it was part of the Marvel universe, right? And, and there is a recognition gap that something 
needs to happen in terms of the way in which we develop understanding around the institution. So I think that, that that's definitely one area in which we can certainly develop further. Um, another way to answer that question is that there, there's certainly an opportunity to find ways in which you can make the United Nations personal. There's certainly a way in which we can make the sustainable development goals personal. I think time and time again, I've actually seen young professionals play a critical role in terms of advocating for climate action, advocating for you know, a variety of different uh, you know, topics aligned with the SDGs within their own organizations. And I think in a certain way, the idea of building better together relates back to the ethos of the United Nations. I think you know, time and time again, I've realized that exposure to understanding what the United Nations does, the value that it provides you, Americans, uh, people are often hard pressed to say that we should leave. You know, if, the, if you fully understand and are aware of the benefits that we have as a country, um, it, it's become very difficult to fight that, fight the idea that we truly need to build better together. So in a variety of different ways, educational initiatives certainly need to be there. We truly need to help young people see themselves as problem solvers. And through that, I truly believe that we'll have a, a different perspective of the institution overall. Now, this is- Joyce, can I add something? Please I, do. I, 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 I would take it a step further. I would see that not all young people can work as interns at the United Nations, but I think we should have a national process, maybe run by something like the UNF or the UNA where Dustin works, to do a couple of things. One, uh, to do voluntary work to create more youth chapters. They've done a fabulous job in doing that. And we have gone from a few to a great number. But secondly, why couldn't we take the Teach for America example? And civics is an undertaught question in the United States, much to, I think, the damage of the US. Why do we have so much racism? Because people don't know and understand uh, and don't want to know and understand how to deal with it. But why not focus on the United Nations and international cooperation and those kinds of things and get the kind of young people that have been recruited or want to be recruited to give a year, maybe on a free basis or maybe on the basis of just meeting their expenses and go out to the country as a whole in all of that vastness and become volunteers and do a course uh, a week perhaps in each high school that would bring together the juniors and the seniors to look at this subject. I think something more organized more effective would do it. Of course, this would be only the beginning because they could also teach civics in America. <laughs> you could do everything but understand what the electoral college is to balancing your checkbook. And those are the kinds of courses that we, we badly miss and we see in many ways uh, creating the isolation that too many people feel in this country. But uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to say there are a lot of ideas out there I would hope that people that, that follow with Dustin in his footsteps and work with him would pick up on a lot of these things because there's creative opportunities. I mean, your point is well made that uh, about the lack of education, even in basic civics now in the United States. I'm just curious, Ambassador Rowe, is there a similar problem in Europe, in France, with, uh, with young people not fully understanding the United Nations or even the role of their own government in their, own, in their societies? Is that an issue or have you guys tackled that? Oh, I'm quite sure that a lot of young French don't have the slightest idea of what, you know, the way United Nations is, uh, is, uh, is working. Actually, I, I think they are, they are really using all their time, all their, their, their brains to try to understand the European Union. 
<laughs> and uh, so, and so after that, usually after trying to understand European Union, you are totally exhausted. So yeah. uh, really, no, of course, no. I think the difference between the US and maybe Europe, it's in Europe, the United Nations is extremely popular. Uh, I should say popular beyond even what is realistic. There is a big, big expectation towards the United Nations uh, in Europe, in the, in the general public opinion. But I'm not sure that it's based off on information. It's more, I should say, a feeling, uh, really, towards multilateralism. Uh, in our last few minutes, we only have a very few left here before we have to turn it back over. I really want to look ahead and I just throw it out there to let you know that, you know, as some people look at the United Nations who are not a part of it, we wonder if this is a, a big gigantic organization that is not changing quick enough to address, to really be a part of the real world, to be relevant. I'm thinking in terms of why haven't we had a female secretary general and all of that, right? So Linda, when you look ahead, do you see this possible at any time? Do you see things changing so that the United Nations becomes more relevant? First of all, Joyce, that's one of the most difficult questions. <clears throat> and if you'd like me to ask, shall I answer it in 25 words or less? Please. <laughs> what do you have to do for NPR? <laughs> oh, yes, okay. 45 words. <laughs> um, what I, I mean, I just wanted to touch on what you said about uh, a new secretary general and the prospects perhaps for the first female secretary general. Um, I mean, I think that there's, um, no one knows if that's gonna be a possibility. And I think there's, there are great divisions in terms of, there are some people who feel, some groups feel that, you know, it's about time that you have the first uh, female secretary general after so many years, 75 years. And there are others who feel that as long as you have, for, for example, a secretary general, in this case, you have uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, but any, any secretary general who can promote the cause, who is committed, for example, to gender equality, increasing the presence of women in, um, throughout the UN and in peacekeeping missions, et cetera. But I mean, as things stand now, I mean, the odds are that Secretary General Antonio Guterres who hasn't formally announced he's running, but everyone knows he is, will, you know, barring some crisis or a mishap, will be the next Secretary General. So um, on that level, I think, you know, that that's going to be a, a pretty stable post. Um, but on the horizon, I don't really see anything major occurring. People always speak about uh, changing, reforming the Security Council. And again, I think most people know that's kind of a pipe dream. I mean, the reality of it is there's so much, uh, there's so many differences, even just among the P5. And while many of, I mean, we all know China doesn't want Japan, China doesn't want India. Um, we don't, I mean, Russia ha has its own concerns. In Latin America, how, what, how would you uh, bring on uh, members who would have veto? I'm really talking about bringing the veto power. Mm -hmm. In Latin America, every, they're totally uh, uh, not on the same page. I mean, you have Mexico wanting to be, would want to be, have that post. You have Brazil, you have Chile, you have Argentina. So there's almost like a myth that I think that uh, countries, that, that there is some kind of sense that there's even regional agreement yeah. about which countries should join the Security Council. When in reality, they're rivals. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and each, each member of the each PR P5 member 
will not allow, you know, their rivals. And so at this point, it just looks totally, you know, like it's not going to happen, maybe not in our lifetimes. Right. Sam, uh, I, I just, I'd like you to weigh in here. I mean, clearly this was not an issue when the UN was founded, but uh, this clearly I'm sure is an issue as you look ahead. Do you think it is, it's moving fast enough at least for, based on its founding? Oh, I'm sorry, is that a question for me, Joyce? Yeah, Sam, if you'd like to. If not, I'll pass it on if you don't feel like you want to comment on that. Um, well, I, I guess I'd like to just come back real quickly to, to comment that uh, the Ambassador Pickering made, which I think is an excellent one. It probably ties into what, what you're talking about here, though, Joyce, and that's about education and civics. And I, I was struck by, as he was speaking, uh, because this is a comment about moving forward, uh, that, that I come back to Harry Truman. I work at the Truman Presidential Library. Uh, but Truman's internationalism really was remarkable. You know, he was a Midwestern U.S. senator from Missouri. He was a county politician before that. He served overseas in World War I. Uh, but really, his worldview really was shaped by his, his education and his reading of history, even though he was not college educated. He was educated in Independence uh, Missouri High School. And, uh, but he had a, very interest, a great interest in history and interest in civics. And, and civic, civic education was really ground into him and his fellow students at a young age. And Truman had a lifelong, was a lifelong learner. So, you know, his only experience overseas was during World War I and when he served in France. And then, you know, he attended the Potsdam Conference shortly after becoming president of the United States. But, you know, he had an international view uh, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, you know, even before he ever went overseas. So I guess I want to come back to the point of education and how that really would be a maybe a foundation for that kind of multilateralism of young people moving forward. Very good. I'm not sure that's an art, artful reply to your question, but that's the best works, I can do. <laughs> Ambassador Rowe, as you look ahead, do you see any major changes? Is this issue of gender equality even important uh, right now for the UN? Well, I think uh, what, what will be, what should be important in the future is that a lot of issues now are transnational issues, issues which are really, as I, I was saying with climate change, but you have other issues where you can't solve these issues on your own. Uh, really, the, for instance, the governance of internet uh, and, uh, and all the, also the future of artificial intelligence which is raising a lot of ethical questions. Mm. You know, really, the killing robots, are we going to accept it? So you have a lot of issues. We are entering into a, a new transition. Civiliz uh, we are entering into a new civilization. And uh, I do think that uh, what would be important would be to convince the countries that they have an interest to work together. We succeeded to do it for climate change before the Trump administration we had in the in Paris for for the COP, the, the the UN meeting. We had all the countries of the world, we which accepted to commit themselves to fight together climate change, and I think we should work, uh, you know, in this way, looking at the new issues and trying to bring them to United to the United Nations. Not because we love the institution; it's simply it's the only place we are all together, and in a sense that's really, in a sense, that could be the summary of the United Nations. We are all together. 
Very good. That's thing I'm going to save you for last because as I keep saying, you're our future. Ambassador Pickering, as you look forward, what final thoughts do you want to leave us uh, leave with us? I think that to pick up on what Ambassador Ahao said, the members are important. And so the bilateral relationships among the members can in some way condition their capacity uh, to deal with the multilateral problems that have to be faced with the U at the UN. The world is becoming much more multilateral. Problems don't have borders. Pandemic is just one indication of that. So we need to get realistic about this question. We need to get realistic about the notion that the UN has to be a give and take enterprise, not an I win, you lose, zero sum uh, continued battle. And my own feeling is that the more we send people to the UN who believe they're ennobled as knights uh, to battle all of the good ideas that come along from the rest of the world, the more we will undermine our own future and our own capacity. Uh, many years ago, I suggested, even while I was representing George H.W. Bush at the UN, that it was time to look at the veto. Yeah. And it would be a good idea if we could take the veto and perhaps on something as trenchant and as important as genocide and put it into a qualified effort. And our good friends in France picked up on this effort. I'm sure they thought they invented it and they probably did. But that unless three members of the Security Council were agreed to oppose something they had tried to negotiate in the form of a resolution, they would agree to abstain if it was on genocide, for example. And, you know, there was a time when we could got close to getting that. That's not there now. It will take a huge amount of work. And, and that's a big, big issue. And it's not one that's going to go away very easily. But we need to think about these kinds of questions. And the Secretary General has his own role. Uh, but to make something change in the UN requires basically a significant number of the major players in the UN. The great thing I found about the UN is most important players were not from the biggest countries. They turned out to be the most adept, agile, and capable people, whether they came from big or small countries. And so there is still, in what I would call, an equality of merit that can play a role in the UN, and that's as it should be. I think, finally, we should drop this notion that each of us is entitled to some national, uh, put it this way, some national benefit from the UN directly. I can tell you I was ashamed that on the morning I would go and vote uh, to make sure, in fact, that the UN recruited the best of all possible people. And in the afternoon, I'd go by to the Secretary General with a list of four Americans that I would say he absolutely had to hire. <laughs> there were things of that sort. And we need to get out of what I would call the old nativism, natural nationalism, and think about the international community. And what you are prepared to give in the UN, I think you will earn down the road in what other people will help you do. And so don't give up. It's the one body we've got. We all help to create it. It has many flaws, but there's much that can be done uh, to improve it. And it takes just an opportunity with some perhaps 
ability on the part of the nations to say, we'll give if you will help us get. Very good. Wise words as we expected. So, uh, Dustin, <laughs> you have the final wise words to offer us because as I say, we're looking to you to straighten up all of this. So go ahead, Dustin. Joyce, again, impossible, impossible to follow. So it makes my job a little bit easier. Um, I'll end by saying that I think about this from the individual level, right? I think we truly need to think about how we can bring the ethos of the United Nations, the idea of building better together, the idea that we are all together in this fight um, on the individual level. And that, that to me is represented through reconsidering the distance that we assume between each other, between our neighbors and between those halfway around the world. I think civics is a great way to start doing that, but I think there is a power in terms of seeing each other as more alike than different. And I think as we move forward in all of our roles, that's something that I'm committing to. That's something that I hope education is moving towards. And I know that those are the most transformative learning experiences that I've had. I think about my time on my Fulbright, uh, being transformative in terms of seeing the world as actually smaller than we actually conceive. And developing a worldview doesn't need to be through a foreign language. It doesn't need to be through majoring in international relations. It just comes through seeing each other as humans. So, uh, you know, that, that's where I want to leave off. That's where I'm really focused in terms of my work. And, I, and I'm sure everyone on this panel can agree. We truly do need to reassess the distance that we see between ourselves and others. Well, Dustin, you have proven that you can be young and wise and compassionate all at the same time, as our esteemed colleagues have also demonstrated today. So I want to, on behalf of all of the World Affairs Councils, thank you, Sam. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Ambassador Aurora. Thank you, Ambassador Pickering. And Dustin, thank you. You are our hope. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to turn it over to John Krieger, who's going to close it out for us. Thank you, Joyce. And I want to, there's not much for me to add at this point, having already heard from across generations and across, uh, across borders from this incredible panel. So I'll just conclude by thanking the entire panel, thanking my colleagues at the councils across the country and also uh, our keynote speaker, Ambassador Pickering. This was a wonderful program and what it really showed to us all is just the critical importance of global cooperation. And as we celebrate and recognize 75 years at the United Nations and look at what the next 75 years looks like, I think we all know with real importance uh, what, how much global cooperation and international exchange will play a role in meeting some big borderless challenges. And we heard about many of them tonight from a global pandemic to climate change, all the way to, I believe, killer robots. So thank you again, and please, please uh, uh, continue to support your local world affairs councils. We will see you again soon. Stay healthy, stay safe, and have a great evening. Thank you. <laughs>